Hello and welcome to this edition of the ILO's Future of Work podcasts. I'm Sophie Fisher from the ILO. My guest today is Alan Blue. Alan is co-founder of LinkedIn and currently vice president of product design. LinkedIn, as many of you will know, started out as an online professional networking and career development platform. But now it's much more than that. It covers research, training, networking, as well as job searchings and postings. What's more, with approximately 725 million registered members in 150 countries covering 24 languages, it provides a unique overview of what is happening in the world of work. So really, it would be hard to find somebody who has a better view of the role that technology is going to play in the world of work. So Alan, welcome and thank you very much for joining us. It's great to be here. I heard you say in an earlier interview that you had been working on future of work issues since 2012. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Um, in uh, 2012, I had the, the great fortune to participate in uh, a set of panel discussions, which were about the elections, uh, uh, the presidential elections in the United States. And one of the people who was sitting on the panel with me was the president of a, of a community college. And he claimed that he had closed the skills gap in his area. Uh, and I was very interested in this. And and uh, asked him how, and he basically said, well, we had a simple formula for it. We went out and talked to the companies who were nearby us in our area, asked them what skills they needed to be trained, and we trained them. And suddenly our students had 80% placement rates upon finishing coursework at our college. Um, and that got me thinking about all the things that LinkedIn needed to do regarding uh, making sure that we were able to close the, the, what we call the training gap to make sure that people are able to take jobs. It was right about that same time that LinkedIn got big enough as an organization and as a network to be able to begin extracting insight from our network. So with 725 million people, with information about the jobs they hold, the schools they went to, uh, the things they are doing in our network, we can extract a lot of valuable insight about what's happening in the economy around the world. So those two things kind of happened at the same time back in 2012. And ever since, I have been interested not only in what the world of work looks like and is going to look like, but also what we want to do about it. Okay, so how do you see it? How do you see the future of work? Well, Right now, it's obvious to us that every job we're looking for in the future is going to be either a technology job or a technology-enabled job. When we look at the fastest growing jobs, the ones which have the greatest potential for future growth, all of them are either engineering jobs, data jobs, machine learning jobs, or they are marketing jobs, customer service jobs, which are enabled by technology. So if you're a marketer now, you need to know how to use Facebook. You need to know how to use Google and how to target advertising, how to use that technology to your advantage while you're doing your work. The same is true for every growing job in the world right now. Okay, but not everybody has the same kind of access to technology. I mean, you and I are lucky. You're sitting in California. I'm sitting in Switzerland. We are very privileged. 
but there are plenty of people who don't have access to this. One of the things that people are concerned about, about the future of work, is that it's going to broaden inequality. So how do we stop this tech revolution doing that? So I guess I would say first that, that every era has had uh, gradients, if you will, in terms of demand for different kinds of work and different types of skills. And all of them have found themselves in uh, one form or another where employers are interested in hiring specific kinds of skills. And they're so interested in it that they're willing to take uh, additional and extraordinary steps to do so. So you can think of probably the very best example is, uh, is Bell Laboratories back in the early days of, uh, of, of telephone communication. Uh, they needed to essentially create a whole collection of people who understood these new technologies. So they, instead of uh, relying upon uh, the educational institutions to train those people, they brought them in and trained them themselves and prepared them for these jobs, which were brand new. And that's very much the kind of world we're in today. When we at LinkedIn talk to our customers, talk to companies, they are willing to do extraordinary things to bring people into these high in-demand jobs. So the real question for us needs to be, how do we make sure that that incredible demand for these roles is something which finds its way equitably through the workforce instead of falling once again to the people who find themselves, as you say, in these privileged positions. In order to do that, there are <clears throat> three big areas that we uh, look at which get in the way. So the first one is a very traditional problem, which is a training gap. So do you believe, do I believe, that when it comes to learning how to use technological, uh, technologically enabled uh, uh, tools, like for instance, a uh, computer-driven five-axis sawmill, do we believe that everyone in the world has equal access to the, the training required to be able to do that work? The answer is absolutely not. So our question is, how can we close that gap and can technology actually play a role there? So. For many years, we've talked about the, the value of uh, online education. Is it possible for us to essentially deliver the education necessary to run that sawmill to everybody in the world? Um, and we've made progress. There, there really is progress. And at LinkedIn Learning, um, we, uh, we offer training in many different skills and skill areas. But there's a fundamental data and technology access problem do you have access to broadband? Do you have access to a computer? Um, do you even have access to electricity to be able to do it? Um, and then can you actually afford the products when they're actually out there? So there are problems that need to be addressed directly there. But there's a second thing, which is really important in this area, which is, hey, our employer is going to pay attention to a degree, if you will, that you get online. So traditionally, employers are looking for the fastest, most efficient way to bring skilled people into their workforces. And they have traditionally relied on things like a high a pedigree from a university, a specific degree, a, a bachelor's degree in the United States, a bachelor's degree is required for far more jobs than the skills implied by a bachelor degree are required for. And that's because it's shorthand for this person's a skilled person. So, uh, we not only need to overcome the access 
to online education in order to make it work. But we also need to make sure that employers are willing to act on these online training methods in order to be able to make their hiring decisions. Well, what we're talking about here really is social justice, isn't it? Because equality and equity is directly linked to social justice. What you've been talking about is a very strong investment involvement of the private sector in this transition. And do you think that that is actually realistic on a global basis? So I'll go back once again to the question of um, employers having this massive need for this talent. So, uh, for example, LinkedIn, we have a need for this talent. We're obviously a technology company. We hire a lot of technology people, engineers and so forth. But um, we have been competing with our peers in Silicon Valley and all around the world for that talent. So we have actually built two projects at LinkedIn, one called Reach, which is an engineering apprenticeship program, and one called Shine, which is a uh, combination of LinkedIn learning and a new hiring process in order to be able to address these issues. Basically, it means that we are trying to broaden our own talent pool by doing things which would normally be considered extraordinary. Companies are right now very open to the ideas uh, of reaching outside their normal talent pools and their normal processes for this type of talent. So I do believe that a large section of the private sector is willing to make these changes. And I do think it's actually a great opportunity for um, not, not just for companies, but also for uh, their partners in labor. Uh, traditionally, you, and not every union, but many unions, guilds, uh, labor organizations, uh, labor organizations have been uh, trainers, have been people who have discovered these um, uh, the, the needs that their employers and the employers they work with have and be able to provide that training. So I think we are at a position where the demand is strong enough in two directions, one towards technology, one towards green skills and, and, uh, and, and, and the green economy to encourage a large portion of the, uh, of the private sector to participate. People associate jobs, tech jobs, and the introduction of greater technology into the economy with more unstable work with the gig economy. Do you think it's actually possible to shift it so that tech jobs are actually create security for, for people? Well, yeah, yes, I do. Um, I think that there are that there, there's a, a wide variety of different types of tech, tech jobs that are out there. Most of the tech-enabled tech jobs actually fall within um, what we would consider a sort of normal job framework. So they look like full-time roles. They look uh, they, they are full-time roles. <laughs> they are um, uh, they, they are at, at companies where uh, these tech workers not only are or tech, tech and tech capable workers are not only um, full-time employees, but where they are treated as some of the single most important talent at the organization. Um, as a matter of fact, I would argue even that tech workers and people who are working in tech enabled jobs actually have substantially greater power in terms of defining their own roles and their own, uh, the, the way in which they work and their relationship with their employer. Uh, than uh, people in non-tech-enabled jobs. 
The ILO has identified a number of other drivers of change in the future of work, um, notably climate change, which, which you mentioned, green jobs, demographics and, and globalisation. Now, how do you see those factors interacting with changes in tech? So at LinkedIn, we have done a bunch of work uh, in trying, trying to understand the green economy. And uh, as a matter of fact, we've just published some results of some of the early work that we've been doing that in, in that area. And essentially, um, we are looking at a, um, a substantial transition in many industries and within many specific skills towards the world of green energy. So I can give you a couple of uh, options, a couple of examples. So uh, a good one might be that uh, an investment analyst, someone who is trying to evaluate whether investment is a good thing or a bad thing and recommend it to their clients, can no longer do so without taking climate into account. So the future possible risk associated with climate, given a company's particular business model, is something that investment analysts need to learn about and need to be able to understand and include in their, in, in their uh, calculation of whether a company is worthwhile for an investment. That is something which represents a substantial shift in the actual skill itself. That ability to do that, an that analysis um, is just going to be different in the coming years than it has been up to this point. So we've watched over the last few years, and even now, even as we, we, we exit the world of COVID-19, we've seen very substantial increases in hiring for people with uh, green skills, with these skills which have been altered. Um, and I know the ILO itself has even published a report saying that we're looking at probably 24 million new jobs worldwide being generated by that green economy. That is one more source for the private sector to say, we need to lean in here or we need to do different things in order to be able to train those skills or make sure they're being trained, hire those people. Um, so it looks like it might be another force alongside technology. Uh, so long as people could take advantage of it. Do you think that would also be uh, the case lower down the skills chain? I mean, I'm wondering whether, in fact, there are more people out there, not, not financial analysts, but people with, with uh, more humble skill sets who actually already have a lot of the skills they need for tech jobs. But somehow these just haven't been identified and converted. Because uh, what, what I'm interested in here is how are we going to spread the benefits of technology that you've been talking about to people where infrastructure is not so great, where demographics are creating more pressure, um, and where they don't have the physical infrastructure that, that um, the, the Northern Hemisphere benefits from. A couple of things that we've learned over time regarding um, basically people being able to take those jobs. So we know, for instance, that uh, customer service and customer service jobs, uh, and this is just as, as an example, are good tech-enabled jobs, pay a lot, and can be the foundation for transitions into additional jobs in the world of technology. But we also know that the skills overlap between that job and being a bartender is 77%. So the number of skills you have doing a job in the hospitality industry 
might overlap heavily with some of the skills which are actually available in the world of uh, these tech-enabled, fast-growing jobs. The real question is why people aren't making the transition. So we talk about a transition gap here, where uh, even though there's that much skill overlap, what we see is that 75% of the people who take a high-growth technology job, technology-enabled job, are coming from another technology-enabled job. And vice versa, 75% of the people who take um, a non-technology-enabled job, maybe a slow-growing or non-growing job, are coming from a similar job. So there are things which are holding us in place in the types of jobs that we actually have. And one thing we can point to directly is this third gap we talk about. It's a network gap. We know, and this is familiar to all of us, we look after our friends, our friends look after us, the same is true of our family, the people we knew from school, etc. What it means is that without diversity among your inside your network, your access to opportunity is actually substantially lower. So it means that if you work in a bar, as a bartender and everyone else you know are bartenders or people working in the world of hospitality, your chances of leaping out of that role are not as strong. So this is an area where we think that technology can absolutely help because technology, and this is like LinkedIn itself, is in a position to basically represent a network um, and actually help you understand who's in your network and how to extend it to be a more diverse network with more capabilities. I will add one more thing to this. And this goes for individuals who are building their networks. This goes for individual, and then this goes for companies who are thinking about doing hiring. There is intentionality behind hiring diversely, behind building a network diversely. When we talk to some of our customers, they reach out to us and ask, how can I more effectively build a more diverse workforce? Not simply because it makes me more competitive, not simply because it increases the size, the pool and quality of the candidates that I actually get, although those things are really important, but because I know that my hiring practices are contributing to the overall lack of diversity in the economy. And I want to do better than that. That goes for you whether you're running a Fortune 500 company or it goes for you whether you're thinking about, hey, you know, when I look at my own network, could it be more diverse? Could I be spreading my access to opportunity a little bit more equitably? At LinkedIn, we call this the plus one pledge. Can I bring somebody into my network? Just one person, plus one. Somebody into my network who I wouldn't normally have met, who I wouldn't normally have uh, uh, encountered in the normal flow of my job in order to share the opportunity I have more broadly. So that is technology creating a basis for additional diversity. And through that, helping to build um, more equality of opportunity. And through that in itself, social justice. Is that how you would see it? Yes, um, it is, of course, only uh, a thin slice of what we need to do in the world in order to address questions of social justice. Um, there are many uh, structural components which hold particular uh, underrepresented groups. They're underrepresented for a reason because there's structures which ensure they are underrepresented. 
Some of those structures are legal. Some of those structures are cultural. Some of those structures are network gaps. Um, so we have, a, uh, we have a lot of work to do on a lot of fronts to be able to un untie all this. Alan, that is a great positive note to end this podcast on. Um, we hear a lot of people being frightened of the introduction of technology and that it will kill jobs or that it will make the rich richer and the poor poorer. But I think what you have said shows us how it can be directed to actually spread the good around and to lift up people who have yet to be reached by, by prosperity and by opportunity. So thank you very much for participating in this ILO Future of Work podcast. Um, it's been a great pleasure. It was great being here. Thank you and thank you everybody for listening and we hope you will tune in to the next Future of Work podcast. Goodbye. Mm -hmm.